ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೈ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲರಮನಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಟುಡೇ ಇಸ್ ವಾಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಕೋಲ್ಡ್ ಫೆಸ್ಟಿವ್ ಸಾಟ್ಸಂಗ್ ಸೊ ಐ ವಾಸ್ ಆಸ್ ಟು ಚೂಸ್ ಎನಿ ಟಾಪಿಕ್ ಟು ಟಾಕ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಸೊ ದ ಟಾಪಿಕ್ ಐ ವಾಂಟ್ ಟು ಟಾಕ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಟುಡೇ ಇಸ್ ಹೌ ಟು ಇನ್ವೆಸ್ಟಿಗೇಟ್ ಹೂ ಆರ್ ಮೈ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ದಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಅ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ ಬಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಒನ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಮೋಸ್ಟ್ ಫ್ರೀಕ್ವೆಂಟ್ಲಿ ಆಸ್ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಆಬ್ವಿಯಸ್ಲಿ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಒನ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಮೋಸ್ಟ್ it's one of the things we all need to understand in order to follow bhagavan's path um but i was also asked to uh, um say something in connection with the current festive season so i thought i would um say something to connect this subject with the festive season um this is not only the season of bhagavan's birth that is yesterday 30th of december was according to calendar date the date of bhagavan's birth but in india uh, birthdays are usually uh, celebrated according to birth star so bhagavan's birth star this year falls um it, it it's on a different date each year this year it falls on um next saturday the 7th of december which also happens by coincidence to be uh uh christmas day december 25th according to the julian calendar so in the eastern orthodox churches still follow the julian calendar by and large so they celebrate christmas on on uh january the 7th because for them that is december 25th according to the, the julian calendar so this year bhagavan's birthday happens to fall on that all other date for christmas um so this is the season both of bhagavan's birthday and of the birthday of jesus christ um regarding uh, jesus christ there is a very ancient tradition in um in christianity from the time of the early church fathers in fact one of the early church fathers is um this saying is attributed to one of the early church fathers saint athanasius but it's very much mainstream christianity it, it is discussed in the i mean it's very central to eastern orthodox christianity it's discussed in the catechism of the roman catholic church so it's a, it's a mainstream uh, and central idea of christianity that is what saint Athan- saint athanasius expressed it in these words but it's it's this is based on biblical texts also that is what saint athanasius said is god became man so that man might become god um generally in christianity they don't they they interpret this in a somewhat different way to uh, the way we would interpret it because they believe that we are but um god is always another we are always separate from god even though in essence we may be one with god or something they have their own interpretation of it but in the light of bhagavan's teaching this is uh, a very beautiful saying that is our aim is to become god um and so we can say the same of bhagavan bhagavan appeared in human form so that we who mistake ourselves to be this human form might become bhagavan um uh but can we become bhagavan can we become god if we were not already god we couldn't become god because god is immutable god cannot be the result of any change so 
there's, there cannot be any, nothing can become God if it is not already God. So, uh, the, in order to become God, we must be God already. Uh, so this fits in very well with Bhagavan's teaching. We are God already, but because we have risen as ego, we seem to be something separate from God. This is what Bhagavan talks about in verse um, verse 24 of Upadesha Undia. Um, what Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Upadesha Undia is, Irakum ekayal isa jibagal oru porleyava undipara upadi unavei verundipara. What that means is, irakum ekayal, by existing nature, isa jibagal, God and soul, oru porleyava are just one substance. Upadi unavei veru, only adjunct awareness is different. That is, the substance he's referring to here, the poral, that's a Tamil word that's equivalent to the Sanskrit term uh, vastu. And in fact, in Sanskrit, what he says is, in the Sanskrit version of this verse, he says, uh, satsvabhavata vastu kevalon. That It means the same. By existence nature, vastu uh, uh, or substance is only one. So uh, substance, that means what we actually are, we is and what God actually is is one, um, and that substance is our existing nature. That is our our nature is just a pure being. Our our own being, what we actually are, is God. So we and God are one. But why then do we seem to be different from God? Only because of adjunct awareness. Adjunct awareness means uh, upadi means what is. Um, is what we take ourselves to be. Now we take ourselves to be a person. We, uh, it seems to us that we are this body. We seem to be limited within the confines of this body. And so we take ourselves to be, and the body, as Bhagavan says, is a bundle of five sheaves. That is the physical form of the body, the life that animates it, and the mind, intellect, and will that operate within it. These five make up the body, but we take ourselves to be. So the what Bhagavan calls adjunct awareness is the awareness, the false awareness, I am this body. Because we take ourselves to be this, I am this body, we have limited ourselves as, a, as something finite, something limited in time and limited in space. So we seem to be different from God, but God is what we actually are. So our, our existence as this body that cannot be, re uh, if, if God is what we actually are, this must be just a false appearance. We haven't actually become this body, we just seem to be this body. So because God is what we always actually are, if we know ourselves without adjuncts, that is knowing God. As Bhagavan says in the next verse, Tane upadi vittu ovadu tan isun tane unavadam. Um, knowing oneself, leaving aside adjuncts or separating oneself from adjuncts and knowing, one's, knowing oneself by separating oneself from adjuncts is itself knowing God. Tanai Oliver Dal, because of shining as oneself, because God always shines as ourself. So God is what we always actually are. So how can we become God? 
We are already God, but we seem to be something separate from God. We can, we can remove this seeming separation by knowing ourselves as we actually are. And as he says in the next verse, verse 26, how, how, what is, does it mean knowing ourselves as we actually are? Knowing ourselves, sorry, being ourselves alone is knowing ourselves. So just being as we actually are, what we actually are is God. So if we remain as God, that is knowing ourselves, that is being God. So this is it's not actually a becoming, but because we seem to be separate, when we remove this seeming separation, it it's a seeming becoming, but actually it is just being what we always actually are. So Bhagavan appeared in human, just like Jesus appeared in human form. So, but, uh, so, well, as it put in the Christian terminology, God became man, so man became God. In, more in the terminology of Bhagavan's teaching, Bhagavan appeared in human form so that we who mistake ourselves to be a human form may become Bhagavan. This is also um, beautifully expressed by Murugana uh, in one verse. I don't know where this, it's somewhere in Ramananyana Bodham, among the thousands and thousands of verses of Ramananyana Bodham. Um, I used to help Sadhuam when he was editing uh, the verses of, I mean, I, obviously I wasn't editing because I couldn't understand the verses, but I helped with the cutting and pasting and the bundling the verses together. And one verse that Sadhuam pointed out to me, um, Murugana says, because the ever unborn uh, has taken birth, uh, countless of the never dyings have died. That is, Bhagavan is the ever unborn. Because he has seemingly taken birth in human form, so many of us egos who never who are never going to die, we have died. So this is the purpose. This is why Guru appears in human form, is to annihilate ego. The annihilation of ego is what is metaphorically called man becoming God. Um that is shedding the false identification, I am human, and knowing ourselves as we actually are, as just I am. So, in order to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. That is, we can't, we can't know what we actually are without investigating ourselves. So, the best, the most appropriate way to celebrate the birth of Bhagavan or the birth of Christ, for that matter, is to investigate who am I. This is what Bhagavan um, implied in one in the first of the two verses that he wrote when in um, in 1912. That's 110 years ago when devotees, uh, or 113 years ago, 111 years ago, uh, when devotees first celebrated his birthday. Bhagavan wrote two verses, and in the first verse of those two verses, he, what he wrote is, Pirandanal Edu, uh, um, uh, what it, whatever is birthday, Peru uh, Vira Savior, you who, are make, who make a great celebration, Pirindadu Evan Nam Endru Peni, Pirindu Iratal Indru, Endrum Andrei Ilahu Poralil Pirinda Andrei Pirindanal Arm. What that means is only that day when 
carefully attending to where we were born, we are born in the substance, in the poral, uh, that's our real nature, which always shines as one without ever being born and dying. Only that day is the, is the real birthday. That is the implication. So what he describes in this verse as Hirandadu Eben Nam Endrupeni, that means uh, carefully attending to where we were born. Attending to where we were born means we were born means where ego arose. That is, it is ego that takes birth. Uh, uh, that before the body can be born, we first rise as ego, because the body seems to exist only in the view of ego. So investigating where this ego rose from, the source from which ego rose, from where can ego rise? It can only rise from ourself, from what we actually are. That is, we seem to be ego in waking and dream. But in all three, what the only thing that we experience in all three states, in waking, dream, and sleep, is our own being, I am. That is what Bhagavan referred to in verse 24 of Ulkeshundi as irakumike, our, our, our being nature, our nature's existence, uh, Um So uh, uh, what exists in all these three states is our own being, I am. So from where does ego rise? Only from our own being, from I am, from what we actually are. So carefully attending to where we were born is just another way of expressing carefully attending to ourself. Attending to ourself is what Bhagavan calls investigating who am I. That is, in order to know what we actually are, uh, we need to attend to ourselves. In order to see what we actually are, we need to look at ourselves. Without looking at ourselves, we cannot see ourselves. Seeing ourselves doesn't literally mean seeing ourselves, it means knowing ourselves as we actually are, being aware of ourselves as we actually are. In order to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves. So this is this is what self-investigation is all about, turning our attention back within to look deep within ourselves in order to see what we actually are, in order to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. So how to so we come to the question that is so often asked how to investigate who am i before answering this question i would just like to say one thing that is if we understand bhagavan's teachings correctly we will automatically thereby understand what the practice is um because bhagavan's teachings all his teachings are pointing at this one practice. They're all clarifying this practice. They're all uh, clarifying why we should attend to ourselves, how we should, what is it we are to attend to. All This is clarified in all Bhagavan's teachings. So to really understand how to practice self-investigation, we need to have a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings. To the extent to which we have a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, it will be clear to us how to investigate ourselves. And but in order to have a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, we need to investigate ourselves because we can understand his teachings only to the extent to which we put them into practice. This may seem to be um, 
uh, 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 saying something impossible. First, we first we need to understand his teachings to investigate ourselves. But to understand his teachings, we need to investigate ourselves. This may seem to be a um, circular reasoning, but it, this is the process. When we first read Bhagavan's teachings, we understand a certain extent that we understand enough to begin investigating ourselves. As we go deeper in this practice of self-investigation, the meaning and implications of his teachings become clearer. So as we go as we go deeper in the practice, our understanding grows deeper. As our understanding grows deeper, we're able to go deeper in the practice because this is the path of jnana, the path of, of knowledge, the path of clarity, of, we, of uh, wisdom, of awareness, knowing ourselves as we actually are. So like any investigation, when you start off an investigation, where the investigation is going to lead may not be very clear at first, but as the investigation progresses, the way forward becomes clearer and clearer, likewise with this path. So to, to begin to understand this practice, we need to begin to understand, but we need to at least have a basic understanding of Bhagavan's teachings. If we don't understand his teachings, if we're told to attend to ourselves, we may imagine, oh, I'm this body, so let me sit in front of a mirror and look at myself. Obviously, that's not what Bhagavan means, because Bhagavan clarifies we're not this body, we're not this mind, we're not any of these five sheaths. It has to be said at first, first, in order to clarify what we actually are, it has to be, first, the distinction needs to be made between subject and objects. Uh, th this is what in in um, in uh, Vedanta in Advaita philosophy is called drik drisya viveka. Drik means the the seer, or the, in other words, the, the one who is knowing, one who is perceiving. Drisya means what is known or what is seen, and viveka means uh, distinguishing. So we need to distinguish ourselves as the knower from everything that is known. In other words, what we actually are is not any object. So we are told at first, you are the subject, you are the seer, you are the knower. But even that is not the final truth. We are not actually the subject. The subject, the knower, or the witness, as it's sometimes called, is ego. That which knows all this is ego. We, what we actually are is the reality of ego. That is, ego is the adjunct mixed awareness. I am this body. I am this person. I'm certain such a person. In this adjunct mixed awareness, the fundamental awareness I am is what we actually are. That is why Bhagavan often used to say, uh, refer to this ego as chit jada granti. Chit means pure awareness. Jada means what is not aware. And granti means a not. So the chit portion of ego is I am. But jada portion of ego is this body. That is, ego is a conflation of what is aware with what is not aware. The body is jada. The body has no awareness of its own. The body may seem to be aware, but it's not actually the body that's aware. It's I am who am aware. It's the, it, the I that is shiny in the body but is aware of the body as I am this body and consequently aware of all other things. So we first need to distinguish ourselves 
as the subject distinct from the objects. Then when we begin to investigate the subject, the adjuncts drop off and the reality of the subject remains. That is what we actually are. Um, but it's sufficient at first to start investigating the subject, the ego, because the, to, when we investigate the subject, it, as Bhagavan says, um, there's a passage in um, recorded in um, Maharshi's Gospel where Bhagavan says, ego is chitchadagranti. When you investigate the source of the ahamvritti, ahamvritti is, means I thought, it's, an, it's a Sanskrit term, it's another term referring to ego. So when you re, uh, investigate the source of the ahamvritti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego. That is, when we're investigating ourselves, though ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body, what we are trying to attend to is not the body portion or the mind portion, not any object. We're trying to attend to the subject. So we're, we're trying to return to the chit aspect of ego, the knowing aspect of ego. And to the extent to which we hold on to the chit aspect of ego, namely I am, the adjuncts will drop off because the adjuncts are not holding us. We are holding the adjuncts. This body doesn't say... Uh, doesn't say, doesn't claim to be I, as Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludhunapadu, but the Jada body does not say I, it's not aware of itself as I. It's we, as ego, who say I am this body. So it's we who are holding the body, the body is not holding us. So if instead of holding the body, if we try to hold ourselves, in other words, if we try to attend to ourselves alone, the body and all other adjuncts will recede into the background of awareness, of our awareness, and will eventually disappear altogether. And what will remain shining is our pure being, our fundamental awareness, I am, which is what we actually are. So in order to know what we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves. Attending to ourselves doesn't mean attending to any of the adjuncts we take ourselves to be. It's not attending to the body or the mind or anything. It's attending only to the fundamental awareness, I am. So this is the very simple practice that Bhagavan has taught us. For those who are fam sufficiently familiar with Bhagavan's teachings, what I will have said now is nothing new. It's just repeating the same thing. For anyone for whom what I've said now is appears something new, um, then I suggest reading Bhagavan's teachings more carefully. And when I say reading Bhagavan's teachings, I'm not talking about all the the dialogues. It's useful to read the dialogues, but they are not all very clear recordings of Bhagavan's teachings. Firstly, they're not very accurate recordings, because what was recorded in those books is what people understood of what Bhagavan meant, rather than what Bhagavan actually said or meant. And secondly, often Bhagavan was answering questions from people who were not willing to accept the fundamental principles of his teaching. So he often had to express his teachings in a more diluted way. But to understand the core principles of Bhagavan's teachings, we need to read his own original writings. Works like, um, well, one of the best works to start with is obviously the small uh, prose text, uh, Nana, Who Am I? Um, this is, a, it was originally um, questions asked by Shiva Prakash and Palai and answers given by Bhagavan. Later, Bhagavan um, 
uh, uh, rewrote the answers in the form of an essay. So that contains the very essence of Bhagavan's teachings. So that's a very important text to read again and again and again. But if we don't know Tamil, it's important to find a good translation because not all translations are, are entirely satisfactory. Um, so that's one very important work. Another very important work is Uludunapadu. Uludunapadu contains many of the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings. Another one is Upadesha Undia. Um, but some of the verses from Upadesha Undia I read now. Another is Anmavidde. And there are a few other um, works and uh, verses. And also, most important of all, is Arunacha Stuti Panchakam. Arunacha Stuti Panchakam is the very heart of Bhagavan's teachings because, as Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. That is, in order to succeed in this path, in order to go deep within and to know what we actually are, we cannot know what we actually are without surrendering ego. And surrendering ego means surrendering everything, because everything else appears to exist only when we rise as ego. So we must be wholeheartedly willing to surrender ourselves completely. And we'll be wholeheartedly willing to surrender ourselves completely only when we have wholehearted and all-consuming love to know and to be what we actually are. So without love, Nobody can succeed on this path. We cannot even begin to follow this path properly without love. To the extent to which we have love, we will follow this path. And how to cultivate that love? By trying to follow this path. So the, the love aspect of this path, the bhakti aspect of this path, is uh, is expounded, well, is revealed to us so clearly by Bhagavan in Arunachas Panchakam. So to really understand Bhagavan's teachings and studying um, Nana, Uludunapadu, Padeshundia, Amma, Big Day, and all these other Upadesha works is very important. It's very necessary to understand this, but it is not sufficient. We also need to study Arunachas Panchakam. We cannot understand Arunachas Panchakam deeply without understanding his other works. Because if we haven't studied his other works, Arunachas Panchakam may seem to us to be um, just a, a praise of God outside in the form of a hill. But Arunachas Panchakam is so much more than that. Because though Arunachas appears outwardly in the form of a hill, just like it appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan, what Aaron actually is, what Bhagavan actually is, is that which is always shiny in our heart as I. So that is what Aaron Stuti Panchikam. If we read it carefully and with understanding, we will see that Bhagavan is, is constantly pointing our attention back within. The whole, for Akshramlai, for example, it's all about this struggle of the mind to turn within and hold on to self-attentiveness and about the, the inclination of the mind to jump outwards again. That is the Vishaya Vasana, but keep on pulling our attention outwards. So this battle between our love to turn within, which is what is called Satvasana, uh, the inclination just to be. It's also called Swatma Bhakti, love for our own self. Um, the, the, the battle between this bhakti on the one hand and all the vishaya vasanas which are drawing our mind outwards on the other hand. So, 
And love is the key to success in this path. And uh, we have to be ready to put up a fight because our, the share of asanas will always be uh, put, inclining our mind to go outwards. So we must have all-consuming love to turn within. And however many times our attention comes out again, we must try to bring it back within. Um, so this, in brief, is how to practice self-investigation. Firstly, we need to understand what it is we are to investigate. We are to investigate our own being, our fundamental awareness, I am. And we can attend to that. Yeah, yeah that We can investigate that only by attending to it. Oh, this is one other thing I wanted to say in this connection. That is, many people, when they first hear about this, they say, but how to attend to myself? I'm not able to find this I, or all sorts of things people say. Uh, if someone says, I'm not able to find I, that shows they're looking for something other than themselves, because the I that says, I am not able to find the I, is itself the I that it should be attending to. So in other words, we are to attend to ourselves. We're not looking for something unknown. But what we are trying to attend to is that which is always known, namely our own being. Um, but people say, because the mind is used to attending to objects, this attending to ourself, the subject, is obviously something much more subtle than that. So it, it, takes, it, it, it takes some practice at first to slowly get the hang of what it means to attend to myself. But the, the natural inclination of the mind is to always try to attend to some object, some phenomenon. But we are trying to uh, wean our mind off its attachment to objects and to attend instead to the subject. So the, the subject is more obviously more subtle than the objects, but it is not difficult to attend to it. Um, as Bhagavan says in Amavide, of all the paths, this path is exceedingly easy. Why is it easy? Because as Murugana says in the um, Anupalavi, the, the sub-refrain of that uh, same song, Amavide, that if the Palavi and Anupalavi were composed by Murugana, he, what Murugana says in the Palavi is ayeyati sulapum, anmavide ayeyati sulapum. That means um, ah, extremely easy. Atmavidya, uh, that is this, this, uh, this science of self knowledge, extremely easy. Atmavidya in this context means the practice, the means by which we know ourselves. Uh, this uh, this science of knowing us, knowing and being what we actually are, is Atmavidya. This is extremely easy. We're going to say that in the Pallavi, that's the refrain. Then in the sub-refrain, the Anu Pallavi, he says, um, uh, even to the dullest of people, our own Atma, our own existence, our own being is so very clear. But even an Amala fruit on the palm fades into, insig in, into insignificance compared to that. That is, there's an analogy that is, or, 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 or saying in India, if you want to say something is very, very clear, as clear as broad daylight, you say it's as clear as an amalaka fruit on the hand. An amalaka fruit is a small grape-sized fruit. Um, 
uh, so having that on the palm of your hand, it's obviously something in your hand. It's something very clear to you. But even that is is unclear in comparison to the one thing that we all know every moment of our life, every moment of our existence in waking, dream and sleep. The one thing we always know is I am. So we first need to think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings and understand that what we are trying to investigate is what is always so clearly known by us, namely our own being, I am. And that is what we need to attend to. So uh, we need to understand, firstly, that this is a deep and subtle path, but it is not a difficult path, because what we are trying to attend to is the one thing we know more clearly than any other thing. But though we clearly know I am, we generally overlook I am because we're more interested in other things. But So we need to slowly wean our mind off its interest in other things and take more and more interest in knowing our own being, I am. This is the simple practice of self-investigation that Bhagavan has taught us. This requires all-consuming love, which we are all lacking, but even a little liking, a little love, a little curiosity to know who am I is sufficient to get us started. As we go deeper and deeper, the love will grow more and more and more. And finally, that love will become so all-consuming that we'll be willing, finally willing to surrender ourselves completely to Bhagavan, and thereby we will turn within and merge back into our source and remain as we always are. That is... Um, man becoming God, that is uh, returning to our source, being what we always actually are, which is nothing other than God. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya So if anyone has any questions either about what I've talked about or anything else? I do. Yes. Well, um, Michael, I mean, what's the purpose of of I creating this dream of the I creating all this whole <laughs> game? If if I is infinite love, why do why begin this game of dreaming and put people into this or, or myself pieces of myself into this dream? Why should the I create something like an ego? to dissolve back into the eye again afterwards. If you ask Bhagavan that question, he will say, first find out what this ego is. First find out if there's actually such a thing as ego. Ego seems to exist so long as we attend to things other than ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. If we go deep enough within, ego will disappear forever. And we will then clearly know that we have never become ego. We have never risen as ego. What is always is as it is. So this ego, it, it is not real. It is just an appearance. It's, and in whose view does ego appear? Only in its own view. So if ego investigates itself and knows what it actually is, which is pure awareness, and pure awareness is immutable. Pure awareness can never become ego. If ego knows itself, its own reality, what it actually is, we will thereby know that we have never risen as ego. 
And therefore, the question why becomes redundant. So Bhagavan often used to say, the questions why or how with regard to ego are the wrong questions to ask. First, to ask who or what. Find out what this ego is. Bhagavan said, first you find that ego and bring it to me. Then we can find out how, uh, how or why it came into existence. If you look for it, you won't find it. We seem to be ego only when we're looking outwards. If we look within, has anyone ever seen ego? No. So the, the, all this, none of this is real. This is all just a, an appearance. And it appears only in the view of ego, which is itself just an appearance. And if ego, instead of looking outwards, looks back within and sees what it actually is, it will see that it is the ever immutable pure awareness. It has never risen. There never was any. That, that is why the ultimate truth is ajata. Ajata means non-birth. Nothing, nothing has ever uh, come into existence. Nothing has ever been destroyed. What is alone is as it is. So all these problems arise only when we look away from ourselves. When we look away from ourselves, we seem to have risen as ego. And all these problems uh, arise. First, investigate who, to whom you, you, you say all this. All, yes, when we look at the world, it's full of so much suffering. Maybe little bits of pleasure here and there, but amidst so much suffering, birth and death and disease and um, poverty, and so many, in so many ways, people suffer. Um, that very, they're very desiring to be free of suffering as itself a suffering. So, and there's no such thing as a, that, that is the very nature of ego is dissatisfaction. Everyone is dissatisfied. There are people in this world who have hundreds of billions of dollars. They're still not satisfied. They want more. There are people who, who, who become, uh, uh, who become so powerful, le leaders of countries and they even dictators or whatever. They've got so much power. They're still not satisfied. People who are so learned, who have amassed so much learning or who are so skillful at sports or at music or at arts or whatever, are any of them satisfied? Have you ever met someone who is wholly satisfied? If we were wholly satisfied, the mind wouldn't move outwards. The fact that the mind is constantly roaming about outside, constantly looking for something, because we're all dissatisfied. Why? Because our real nature is infinite happiness. When we rise as ego, we seem to limit ourselves as a finite form. And as this finite form, we cannot experience the infinite happiness that we actually are. So, the dissatisfaction is the very nature of ego. Nothing can satisfy us except the infinite happiness that we actually are. So this, this life is it's a miserable life. We're all craving something that we can never attain so long as we continue looking outwards. So we, we, we all agree this life is unsatisfactory. That's why we come to this spiritual path. But rather than looking for answers, why all this unsatisfactory condition? To whom does all this dissatisfaction occur? To whom is all this suffering? To whom is birth and death and um, disease and old age? In whose view do all these things seem to exist? 
It's all only in the, in the view of I. So who am I? We need to turn our attention back within to find out what we actually are. If we find out what we actually are, we will find that we are ever untouched by any of these things. Because what we are is pure awareness, which is immutable, ever the same, ever un untouched by anything. Pure Satchidananda. Pure being, pure happy, pure awareness, pure happiness, and pure love. That is what we actually are. Thank you very much. Right. And uh, maybe I have to say, uh, I must be out of my mind. There's a nice ring to it. <laughs> yeah, I what? must be out of my mind. I must be out of my mind. So yeah, well, we... we That is our aim, to be out of this mind. This mind is constricting us, making us seem to be this small little person that we are. But what is this mind contained in? It's contained within ourselves. So let us be as we actually are and unconstrained by this mind, unlimited by this mind. So let us be out of our mind. <laughs> yeah, there was just one thing which occurred to me, which is... Um, in um, in sort of uh, um, the old Vedic texts and the Upanishads and so on, and then later on uh, in many of the Indian traditions or the Advaita traditions, this sort of an explanation is very often given in terms of um, and from from you know from about twenty from about three thousand years ago, uh, as you will know, you know, um, to simply talk about a kind of a play of self recognition that uh, that that there is a manifestation and appearance simply for the sake of self-recognition uh, through that manifestation and appearance that is through the ego. Yes, and uh, yeah. this is quite a prominent sort of uh, a way of looking at it. And I think just to sort of, I would imagine it uh, is just to make it a bit easier to, yeah, uh, yes. to understand and so on, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, in the, uh, in the, in the more... I mean, ultimately, it may be completely... You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. But yeah, yeah. For those who are yeah, in the bhakti yet. traditions, it's often said all this is God's leela. It's all a play of God. Um, that is, it's appropriate to say that to people at a certain level of spiritual development. Um, another thing that is sometimes said is for co consciousness to know itself, it needs to manifest itself. That is, um, again, that's a. That's not the deepest truth because consciousness is swayam prakasa, it's self-shining. It, we don't need objects. We, in sleep, we know what we are without knowing anything else. So we don't gain anything in, in waking and dream by knowing other things. It's only to the outward-looking mind. It seems that we don't know anything in sleep. But in sleep, actually, what we know is all there is to know namely ourself, our own being. So we, we, different, that is, there are so many, why there are so many different philosophies, so many different teachings, so many different practices, these are all to suit people at different stages or different levels of spiritual development. But ultimately, all the, the explanations that were useful in the past As we progress further, the, those explanations become redundant. So, so many of the explanations that are given, uh, they, they, that's not saying those explanations are not appropriate. They're appropriate 
for certain people at a certain time. But we need to go beyond all these things. Ultimately, our real nature has no need of this world. In fact, our real nature doesn't know this world at all. So any explanation for why this world appears is a, has to be a flawed explanation. Because as Bhagavan said, it's like asking, how was, why was the son of a barren woman born? How was the son of a barren woman born? First consider, is there any such thing as the son of a barren woman? Obviously, there cannot be. Because if a woman is barren, that means she has no son or daughter. If, if she has a son or daughter, she's not barren. So it's a, all these problems are all for ego. And does ego actually exist? If we investigate it, we find there's no such thing at all. So all problems are solved. Um, there, um, there are two questions. Uh, the first is, uh, what is the role of consciousness in Bhagwan's teaching? Is part of the path to become more conscious of what the body and mind are doing? Or is the state Bhagwan describes unconscious of everything in the world? Thank you. Right. Okay. When we talk about consciousness, we need to clearly understand what we are talking about. That is, the word consciousness is often used by people without understanding what real consciousness is. Bhagavan distinguished between the consciousness that is aware of things other than itself and pure consciousness. Our real nature is pure consciousness. Pure consciousness means consciousness that is not aware of nothing other than itself, nothing other than its own being. In other words, the consciousness I am alone is the real consciousness. Being conscious or aware of anything other than ourself is not real consciousness. It is what is called, um, it's what is often called chidabhasa. That is, chit means the pure consciousness. Chitabhasa, a basa means a semblance or a likeness. So it's, it's, it's not actual consciousness, it's a likeness of consciousness. Why is it not actual? Why is it not real consciousness? Why is consciousness of other things not real consciousness? Because other things don't actually exist. So being conscious of what doesn't actually exist is not real consciousness. What actually exists is only pure consciousness. And pure consciousness is always conscious of itself. So that alone is the real consciousness. Consciousness of other things is not, is, is not real consciousness because other things are not real. But, yeah, yeah, what exists, as it said in Upanishads, it is ekam eva advaitiam. That means one only without a second. What is that one but only without a second? Tatramasi, you are that. So we alone exist. Knowing anything other than ourselves is not real consciousness. So the mind, whose nature is to always know things other than itself, is not real consciousness. Mind or ego in that, that is. Mind, mind as subject, but knower is not. Bhagavan says in, in Ulivanap, that which knows is not real knowledge. Or that which that which is aware is not real awareness. That means that which is knows anything other than itself is not the real is not the real awareness. Real awareness is that which knows only I am. So our aim is not to become more conscious of the body or the mind or anything. Our aim is to become more conscious of our own being. We are always conscious of our own being, but our consciousness of our own being 
is seems to, is seemingly covered over by our consciousness of other things. So the the practice of self investigation is not attending to anything other than ourself. It's attending to ourself alone. The more we attend to ourself, the more our attention is withdrawn from other things. Other things recede into the background of our awareness, and eventually our own being alone will remain shining. That is the state of pure awareness. That alone is real awareness. So, so long as we're aware of anything other than ourselves, that is not real awareness. That's merely... Uh, what is called chidabasa, uh, a semblance of awareness. Abasa also means a reflection, because if you look in a mirror and you see your reflection in the mirror, you're not actually seeing your face. You're seeing a likeness of your face. So abasa means a likeness or a semblance. Um, and by extension, it means a reflection. So this mind that knows things other than itself is not the real awareness. The real awareness is only the fundamental awareness I am. So our aim is just to know that real awareness more and more by going more and more within. In, in, the, in the sastras, one term that is often used is the term uh, sakshi. Sakshi means witness. This term is 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 is, is very um, is is very widely misunderstood and misinterpreted. Bhagavan clarified that actually the term wit uh, sakshi is used in two senses. The initial sense in which the term sakshi is used is. But Sakshi means that which knows other things. That which knows other things is ego. But the term Sakshi is also used, sometimes Brahman or uh, Atma Swarupa is described as Sava Sakshi or Jiva Sakshi. Or what Bhagavan said, in that deeper sense, the term Sakshi means sanity. It's, what it means is it's in the presence of Brahman that all this appears. Not that Brahman is knowing all this. So when the term uh, Sakshi is used, we need to understand the sense in which it's used. When it's used in the sense of knowing other things, that is ego. So why is this term Sakshi used to refer to ego? Because, as I said earlier, the in order to begin this practice, we first need to understand, we first need to distinguish the subject from the object, drikdrasya vibhika, that is the seer, we, we need to know, distinguish the seer from the seen, the knower from the known, the perceiver from what is perceived. So the, the seer or knower or observer or perceiver or experiencer or whatever we call it is called sakshi. So when we are told that we are sakshi, it is not meant that we should. The people then, some many people feel, oh, if I'm if I'm to be the sakshi, I just have to witness everything. So long as you witness everything, you're being ego. The the term sakshi is used to draw our attention back to ourselves as the mere witness of all this, not to continue witnessing, not to continue watching these things, but to draw our attention back to look at ourselves to see who am I. So our aim is not to attend to anything other than ourselves. Our aim is not to know about the body or about the mind or about the world or about anything. Our aim is just to know who am I. And what we actually are is not this body or world or mind or any of these things. What we actually are is just the pure awareness I am.
So Bhagavan's practice is not attending to anything other than ourself. It's attending to ourself alone, to our mere being, to that fundamental awareness I am. That alone is the real awareness. I, I hope that adequately answers that question. This is something that if you listen to the, um, the Neo-Advaitins and so many other people nowadays who give talks about uh, Advaita, they talk about consciousness without making this fundamental distinction between consciousness as that which knows other things, that is mind, that is ego, and the real consciousness, which is consciousness that knows nothing other than its own being, I am. That's a crucial distinction. Bhagavan has, has, has analyzed that distinction in great detail in verses um, 10, 11, 12, and 13 of Uludhunapadu. Thank you very much, Michael. Right. Could, could I ask a question? Yes, certainly. Um, do we um, just have responsibility uh, to ourselves for our sadhana, or do we have a responsibility uh, towards others? Because, uh, you know, we're all in interacting with other people the whole time. And uh, it seems to me that, um, you know, there's the, uh, uh, different levels of responsibility um, for sort of directing others um, al along in the, in the direction of this path. Um, I'd just like to give a, a specific example. My uh, my son Laurie um, was um, very um, very uh, you would follow me in in my interest in um, Ramana Maharshi and this path, and um, he eventually sort of became a bit disillusioned as a result, or he felt he was disillusioned, and and sort of just. Uh, um, it, it just shut down. He decided not to go any further with it. See, so, so do I? I mean, I meet up with him quite a lot. Do I? Um, uh, do I try uh, make an attempt to draw him back, um, or do I just uh, say to myself, "Well, he's just got to find his own way. It's his his life." And um, uh, so, um, so I'm I'm I, I sort of have this dilemma. You know, that's one specific example, but. Um, I'm always wondering whether, you know, I've got other children and, um, uh, and, and friends and so on. And um, I'm just, I just wonder to what extent it's my responsibility to, um, uh, to sort of um, uh, influence them uh, or attempt in some way to, yeah. you know, see, see, if I, see what I'm getting to. And I, I mean, it's, um, yes, I, I, it's I not a large, wide subject. Really, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, our, the only responsibility we have is to turn back within and merge back into our source. That is our ultimate responsibility. That is the, what this life is all about. Mm. When we rise as ego and look outwards, we see others. We see the appearance of others. And obviously, so long as we are interacting as a person in this world, we have certain responsibilities as a person. That's not, th those responsibilities are only for us as a person. 
But our real responsibility is turning within and thereby separating ourselves from this person. But so long as our mind is going outwards, yes, it seems to us we have responsibilities. We have those who are who are near to us, who are dear to us. They um, we we have to care for them and do everything. All these external responsibilities are for the person we seem to be. So, as Michael Ridgway. You have you you have uh, you have family. You've got children, and you've got responsibility, and you've got relationships with so many other people. We naturally have relate have obligations when we're acting in society. If we go into a shop to buy something, we have an obligation to pay the money for it. We we don't just go in, take it, and run run out. So there are so many different types of obligations we have. So long as we're interacting in this world, so obviously we have the, the interaction we have with the people in the shop is minimal. Nowadays, we go into a supermarket without talking to anyone. We we pick up the things we want. We go to a self-checkout. We pay and we go. So there's minimal interaction. If you go to an older type of shop where there's a shopkeeper behind the counter, you have, there's some sort of interaction. You actually, he, he will waver things and uh, tell you the price and you pay him. There's a little bit more interaction. In other so there's so many different levels in we, at which we're interacting with the world around us and with the people around us. The, the more intimate the type of relationship, the more the obligations we have. Obviously, to our family and so on, we have obligations. As far as uh, Bhagavan's teachings are concerned, that is... It's not our responsibility to bring others to Bhagavan's path. Because you set a certain example to your son, he was felt inclined to follow you. That is good. It's good to set a good example. And it's good if, if anyone takes interest, we should share our interest. So if someone comes in to us and asks about Bhagavan's teachings, yes, certainly we should we should answer their questions and everything. But if we find someone is not interested or is losing interest, we should just let it be. Because ultimately, it's not our responsibility, it's Bhagavan's responsibility. Just like Bhagavan is taking care of us, he's taking care of each and every one. So there, we do have responsibilities, so long as we take ourselves to be a person, but our responsibilities are limited. And we can only have responsibility to... If you see someone in difficulty, if you can help them, you have a responsibility to help them. So supposing you see someone, a hungry person sitting on the pavement and you've got food, then you, you've got a responsibility to give that food to that person. But supposing you don't have food and you've got no way of getting food and there's no other way you can help that person, you don't have a responsibility to do what you cannot do. So we... Part of um, being a responsible person is to understand what we where we can help and where we cannot help. We we do we, we uh, there's a saying um, something like it's a prayer I think it's a prayer by some uh, it's a Christian prayer I think God help me to um, to uh, or enable me to help where I'm able to help, enable me to keep quiet when I'm not able to help, and enable me to um, 
know the difference. Give me the wisdom to know the difference. So we need to know the, the limits of our capability. We shouldn't try to do what we cannot do. We cannot... That is what draws us to this path is grace. And it, it's drawing everyone to this path, but everyone is at a different stage in their spiritual development. So we can't accelerate anyone else's spiritual development. We can follow this path ourselves. When others come and ask us, if they want to know, we can share what we know. But we are not here to convert others or to convince others or anything. Is that a satisfactory answer that I've said? It's not a... It's not a very simple answer, but I mean, uh, yeah. there's no simple answer. To, it's not a simple question. It's not. A, there's no simple answer to it. I think. I think the simple answer you've just given is is no, in a way. <laughs> as far as Bhagavan's teachings concerned, yes, no. I mean, uh, yeah. we we're uh, having yeah. difficulty saving ourselves. How can we save others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was um, I was just wondering whether really even the idea or the notion that um, somebody else can get enlightened is 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 a delusion really whether it is you know, ultimately idea, it is a delusion you, you persuade somebody to uh, do self inquiry and, and so on and follow ramana maharshi uh, could that other person you know ultimately uh, attain enlightenment uh, because you know that's just projecting enlightenment into somebody else somewhere exactly, else exactly exactly like so um it did so, no person. So the, the very idea of helping somebody yes, else yes. is flawed about that. Yes, yes, yes. No person can ever attain self realization. That is, Michael Ridgway will never attain self realization. Michael James will never attain self realization. No person will ever attain self realization because the person yeah. is Jada. The yeah. problem is for ego. And even ego cannot attain self-realization because ego needs to try to know itself. But when it knows itself, it will cease to be ego and remain as it actually is. So, uh, as Bhagavan used to say, jnana me jnani. Jnana alone is the jnani. That is, jnana means pure awareness. What can know pure awareness? Only pure awareness can know pure awareness. When we as ego, this impure awareness, I am this body, seek to know what we actually are, we are trying to know that pure awareness. But in our effort to know the pure awareness, we lose ourselves in that, and pure awareness alone remains. So, yes, it is a delusion to think that others can attain self-realization. It's yeah. also a delusion to think that this person we think we take ourselves to be can attain self-realization. Yeah. What is called self-realization, as Bhagavan says in one verse, in verse, um, I think, 20, 21 of Ulivnapdu, he concludes, Unadal Khan, be uh, becoming food is seeing. In other words, we need to be swallowed. We need to be. We need to cease to exist. That alone is knowing ourselves. So we we do have. Um, I mean, we have these forums like this forum, for example, yeah. where we are actually trying to help one another. So, so yeah, but, it seems well, like ultimately there are quite we're a of people wanting to get enlightened, and so yeah. it seems. But ultimately, who are we helping? We can only help ourselves. By having, 
when we look out at the world, we see this world full of billions of people. Very, very few of these people are interested in this path. When we find some people who, in our view, seem to, in, in our dream, there seem to be some other people who seem to have the same interest as us. So we discuss these things. And by discussing these things, we often uh, um, gain more clarity ourselves. Even if we're being, even if someone is asking us a question and we're giving an answer, the very effort to frame an answer is itself helping to clarify it in our own mind. So ultimately, why we take part in these discussions, it's ultimately for our own benefit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is very strong, isn't it? The um, the, the sense of, of the existence of other people just... Yeah. Yeah, like it's part of our ego, isn't it? Yeah. To to to, so, to, to uh, the social thing. Yeah. And, and to have the company of others just yes. feels very supportive. Yes. So long as we're looking outwards, other people exist. And those other people are just as real as the person we seem to be. So the, the, so long as we are interacting this world, in effect, there are a multiplicity of jivas. Even though... The deeper teaching that Bhagavan has given us is there's only one jiva. Who is that one jiva? You are that. So who am I? We need to investigate who am I. Mm -hmm. So that ekajiva teaching is not given to make change how we interact with the world. It's given to turn our attention back within. So long as we are interacting with the world, in, a, in effect, there are many jivas. Even though that's not actually the truth, is what seems to be the case, and we should behave accordingly. Thanks. Thanks. Right. Uh, the next question is in Ulatu Narpatu, Mangalam, verse 2 the self surrender message is easy to comprehend. However, in Mangalam verse 1, is Maharishi talking to us about self-investigation? The last word of the verse, Unnar, could it be interpreted as go and comprehend or comprehend slash investigate? And then it sort of go, it goes on. In order to attend to yourself, would the process of meditating on I watch and discard the objects that are trying to attach to I? Okay. And... Um, Yes, that's... Yes, um, what Bhagavan is, the practice that Bhagavan is talking about in the first Mangalam verse and the practice he's talking about in the second Mangalam verse are exactly the same practice. They're just expressed in different ways. In the first Mangalam verse, regarding the final word, una, we can take it in two ways. We can either take it, una means no, know what is said here. So some certain information has been given in that verse, know this. It also has a deeper meaning. That is, in that verse, he's explaining the, but to know ourselves, we have to be ourselves. So knowing means being. In Bhagavan actually translated that first verse. That's the only verse of Ulunapuru that Bhagavan translated. He translated it in as into a Sanskrit as also as a member. And he ended it with the word siat, may you be. So what he in Tamil he said no. 
in Sanskrit, he said be, because knowing is being and being is knowing. Um, so the, the principal message of that first verse is in order to know what we actually are, in order to meditate on what we actually are, we just have to be as that. It's not, it's not a matter of one thing knowing another thing. We can know ourselves only by being ourselves. He says in verse 26 of Rupadeshundia. Um, in the second Mangalam verse, he says, those who have intense fear take refuge at the, in the fortress of the feet of the the birthless and deathless Mahatian. That birthless and deathless Mahatian is what is always shining in our heart as I. So taking refuge in the fortress of its feet means subsiding back within. That is surrender. How do we subside back within? By being as we are. So it's just it's the same teaching expressed in different words. Um, there was a little bit more to the question, uh, but I... Oh, uh, sorry, Shalini, can you read that? There was a little bit of that question, something about knowing. Um, if, uh, towards the end, there was something. Yes, I'll just read it out. Um, it says, um, in order to attend to yourself with the process of meditating on I, watch and discard the objects that are trying to attach to I. Ah, right. That's what I want to say. Okay. We cannot discard the objects by watching them. Our aim is not to watch the, the objects. Our aim is to watch only the subject. That is, meditating on I means meditating on the subject alone. By meditating on the subject, the, that, that is, our inclination to attend to objects are what are called vishaya vasanas. So the more we hold on to the subject, to our own being, um, that isn't our own being is not the subject, but our own being is the reality of the subject. That's what we're ultimately trying to hold on to. The more we hold on to our own being, the more the vasanas will rise, trying to draw our attention outwards. So whenever vasanas are inclination, so we have, we will be feeling strong inclination to attend to things other than ourselves. But if instead of uh, yielding to those inclinations, and instead of allowing ourselves to be swayed by those inclinations, if we hold on to our own being, the inclinations become weaker and weaker and weaker. So uh, the, the objects will drop off to the extent to which we, instead of attending to the objects, attend to ourselves alone. If you attend to the object, you're there, then attaching yourself to it. And it's, an ever, it's a never-ending process. The only way to break this is to, to give up this uh, inclination to attend to objects and to attend only to the reality of the subject, namely our own being. I, I hope that is a clear answer. This is Prasad here. Yes. Just, just yes. to clarify, thanks for this, to clarify it a bit more. Um, but the, when you look the Atma Vicharana, he says, um, when, when the thought arises, he says, to whom this thought arises, and it's to me, who am I? Is, is, the, is the thing which Bhagavan asks us to do, right? Yes, the fact but... that the thought arises means we are watching the objects, right? So then we're watching and discarding. Are you saying don't do that, just meditate on 
I or uh, yes. uh, yeah. Arunachala, think of Arunachala as in your heart and meditate on it. I need to meditate on it and then forget about the objects. Is that correct? Zavi? Yes, that is, that is when Bhagavan says, he doesn't actually say, ask who am I or ask to whom. He says, if, if other thoughts rise, that is, if anything arises, investigate to whom. Investigate to whom means we turn our attention away from the object back towards ourselves, the one to whom it arises. Um, so, but it's not, we, we are not investigating the thought, we're investigating one to whom the thought arises, so we don't have to watch the thought. That is, if a thought arises, that means our attention has been drawn away from ourselves towards that, because nothing can rise without our attention. No thought can rise if we don't know it. And we, we, don't, we know it because we attend to it. So the very fact that any thought arises means our attention has been diverted away from ourself. So investigating to whom means turning our attention back towards ourself, the one to whom it has appeared. So it's not a matter of, of questioning, but of, that, that is what Bhagavan means by investigate to whom is turn our attention back towards the one to whom all this appears, namely ourself. Is, is that clear? Yeah, just sorry, one more question. Meditating yes. on I is such an abstract thing, it's very difficult. It's easy to meditate on assuming uh, Arunachala is in your heart or whatever God somebody thinks uh, to be. It's easy to keep the focus on that and keep your attention on that. Is that the practice or um, would that help in the long run? So. I imagining our nature is in our heart is a bhavana. Our aim is, so long as you're imagining our nature in your heart, our nature is something, you're, what you imagine is something other than yourself. We don't have to imagine our nature in our heart. Our nature is ever in our heart. Our nature is that which is shining in our heart as our own awareness, I am. Bhagavan says, Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatma who exists blissfully as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all different jivas, beginning with Hari. So we don't have to imagine he's in our heart. We have to, he's ever shining in our heart as our own being. He says in um, in the second verse of Arunachal Pancharatnam, you're, you're ever dancing in the heart as I. So he's ever shining there in, in our heart as I. We don't have to imagine him. And you say I is something very abstract. It's not. Is your existence abstract? Your existence is the most clear and obvious thing. As Murugana says, it's it's even the even an amalaka even a nelikai or an amalaka fruit in your hand is 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 uh, is something very vague compared to how clearly our own existence is shining. But one thing we know is always know is I. When you say I is very abstract, you're 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 thinking of I as something other than yourself. Are you abstract? Can you say that you are abstract? The very center no. of your experience, yeah. all your experience is centered around I. It's I know, I see, I hear, I, I want this, I, I like that. 
all this, it, I is the center, all our whole life is centered around this one axle of I. So it's, it's the most obvious thing. As Bhagavan said, our own being, I am, is the screen on which all other phenomena appear. Everything appears on that screen. Uh, but whether other things appear or not, the screen always remains as it is. So it's the one thing that is so, so clear, but we overlook it because of our interest. If you go to a cinema, you sit for three hours in the cinema looking at a screen. But it's as if you never see the screen because you're more interested in the pictures. That is the problem we're up against. We're always aware I am, but we overlook it because we're more interested in other phenomena. So it's a matter of weaning our interest away from other things to take interest to know who am I. The more interested you are to know who am I, the more you will attend to I. Attending to I is not difficult, but difficulty arises because we're more interested in other things. So we're more keen to attend to other thoughts than to uh, attend to our own being. This is why other thoughts rise. Other thoughts don't rise of their own accord. It's because of our, the other thoughts are nothing but the sprouting of our own vasanas. Our vasanas are what sprout in the form of thoughts. Vasanas are our own inclinations, our own interests. So why is the mind always dwelling on the things it interests it? Because it has liking to dwell on those things. So we are trying to shift our interest, shift our liking away from other things back towards ourselves. So the more love we have to know and to be what we actually are, the easier it, it, it the clearer it will become how easy this path is. Even when we don't have liking, it is always easy. It it just seems difficult because of our reluctance to do so. Okay. An analogy I sometimes give, if, if you've got a sharp knife and a watermelon, with the sharp knife, it's very easy to cut a watermelon. But even the, that is, even though the watermelon has a hard exterior, with a sharp knife, we can easily cut it. When this sharp, with this sharp knife, we're able to cut, cut that hard watermelon, how much easier it will be just to cut our own throat. But are you... You're able to cut the watermelon, you're, it will seem to you, oh no, it's very difficult to cut my throat. It's not difficult. It's, the reason it seems difficult is because we are not willing to cut our throat because we know that's death. Attending to ourself is just like that. It is cutting the throat of ego. Because we don't want to cut the throat of ego, we say it's difficult. It's our, our unwillingness is what makes it seem difficult. It's not at all difficult. Attending to ourselves is the easiest thing there is. Bhagavan says in, in Anma Vidya, more than any other path, this path is Mikelidu. Um, it's extremely easy. But the key is liking. The key is the love, the bhakti. That's why Bhagavan said bhakti is the mother of jnana. If we don't have love to surrender ourselves, if we don't, if we are not willing to surrender ourselves, this path will seem impossible, even though it's actually the easiest of all things. When we can attend to other things, how much easier it will be to attend to ourselves? It's, it should be obvious to us. Is okay, that is you. that clear and helpful? It's it's helpful, but um, you know. Um, 
not entirely clear. On a, on, a, on a practical sense, you know, if I'm sitting and meditating and I'm attending to my eye, right? Uh, yes. I I need to cling on to something. So what I what I should do? Should I should I just say, okay, I am. So this is my being. I am here. So that when I you you don't need to say I am in order to know I am. You always know your own existence. Yes, I am aware of that. So you just focus just on hold on to your own existence. Hold on to your own being. Hold on to yourself. This okay. is where I. This is why I said earlier when I was explaining. I said the key to understanding how to practice this, how to investigate who am I, is to understand Bhagavan's teachings. We need to read Bhagavan's teachings carefully. We need to think about them deeply. Reading is the sravana. Thinking about it deeply is the manana. Applying that in practice is the niti dhyasana. These three should go on seamlessly. That is, when we read Bhagavan, we shouldn't just be reading the words. We should be trying to understand what Bhagavan is saying here. So the 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 sravana is mixed with the manana. We, we attempt to. We're trying to. We're thinking about it deeply, trying to understand what Bhagavan means. And if we think about it deeply enough, that will automatically lead us to the Nidityasana. Because what is Bhagavan talking about? He's talking about I. So if we're really reading Bhagavan correctly, it will make us think deeply about it and draw our attention back to ourselves. If our attention isn't drawn back to ourselves by reading Bhagavan's teachings, we are not reading them properly. So the okay. sravana, manana, and dityasana, these are not three watertight contained uh, compartments. They are one seamless process. So we Thank need so to much. read Bhagavan deeply. Understand, how can we understand what he's talking about? When he's talking about I, if our attention is not drawn towards I, how can we understand what he's talking about? If if you're attending a, a lecture on nuclear physics and you're thinking about what meal you're going to cook the next day, you're not going to grasp anything from a lecture. Likewise, if you're attending, if we're reading Bhagavan's teachings and not attending to I, we won't be grasping what he's talking about because he's talking only about I. So understanding Bhagavan deeply is very necessary. So for that, we need to read carefully, think about it carefully, try to make sense of what Bhagavan is saying. What Bhagavan says is very simple, but because of our mind is full of so many other ideas and beliefs and inclinations to go outward, to understand Bhagavan uh, clearly, we need to think about it very deeply. And most importantly, we need to put it into practice. The more we put it into practice, the more we'll, because the clarity all exists within us. The clarity is ever shining in our heart as that pure awareness I am. The more we attend to I am, the more we are, so to speak, bathing our mind in that clarity. So the more we bathe in that clarity, the clearer the, the real meaning and implication of Bhagavan's teachings will become to us. Thank you, Michael. Namaskar. Yeah. I'm not sure if it helps, but uh, I think for a lot of people, the idea of presence or self-presence, this idea of, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, as uh, what one should be attending to is quite helpful. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah. it is uh, it, it, uh, it is this thing of just being consciousness. Uh, presence, sort of, uh, presence is another word for our being. Yeah, exactly. We are being so, present. We are ever. We are. The one thing that is ever present is I. That is why do we call? Why do we say this place is here? This this time is now. Why is this present moment in time and this present place, uh, present place in space? Why are they present? Because of the presence of ourself. Yes, I think uh, that the problem comes in that that sense of uh, presence is expressed as I, but it is not, and uh, it is that feeling which is expressed as I, but it's not. But what's felt is is that. Is that which is articulated as I, but it's not. Uh, but 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 I is something in language, and okay. uh, it, I mean at the end. Uh, I mean it may be the first concept, uh, the first art- articulated thing, and so on. But it is uh, when we talk about it, something in language. Uh, I mean, so is everything. But but just yes. in terms of feeling, or what to attend to, I sometimes wonder whether that confuses people because I is used in so many ways. And, I uh, is used in so many ways, but yeah. I is the natural name of ourself. How we all refer to ourself is I. Whatever be the language, it's not, the, it's not any yeah. particular language. In every language, there is a first-person pronoun, which is the natural way by which we refer to ourselves. We talk about yeah. consciousness, but what is the natural name of consciousness? I. Because consciousness always knows itself as I. And when we're talking about I, we're not talking about the word I, we're talking about our, our own existence. When, when, if we're talking about mangoes, we're not talking about the word mangoes, we're talking about what the word mango refers to. So when we talk about I, we're talking about that which the word I refers to, which is our own existence, our own awareness. I think the problem our own is presence, that, if you want to. Yeah, I, exactly. I think our presence, because I think what happens is that because we're also entangled in the notions of I, uh, it, yeah. you know, so one can point and point and say it's not this, but it's uh, but to get to that feeling, yeah. uh, you know, of the real I, sometimes requires a lot of uh, sort of sideways moves and and pointers uh, because. Uh, Sort of talking about I itself, uh, because we're so locked into the sort of um, these various notions of I, that it's very difficult to access the real I as presence, and and so sometimes, I mean, I mean, this is what people sometimes seem to feel is that yes. when somebody says presence and so on, then you know you immediately begin focusing on that feeling of being present, that uh, feeling of of just being aware, uh, yeah. awareness, and so on, which is a little bit closer to what we are. Yeah. Um, the next but, question. This is this is why a clear conceptual understanding helps a lot in this part. If we don't clearly understand what we're talking about, for instance, one thing people often say is, "I'm not able to hold on to the eye. I'm not able to find the eye, as if the eye is something, some other thing." But we are so for that eye, but we're trying to hold on to. So it's just a matter of holding on to us. If we think about it carefully and clearly understand what Bhagavan is talking about, how to practice self-investigation becomes very clear to us. But, um, but we can never actually get it right until we do it properly, can we? So it's uh, always a yes, matter but of exploring. There... It's always like we're, we're, we're not, we, we don't just take some principle and then just stick to that principle and that principle will take us all the way there. 
we have to uh, keep investigating, keep changing our position in a way, you know, like it's yeah. trying to get at the target, but um, uh, and, uh, none of us actually get it right. So we, uh, we, it's always frustrating, isn't it, all well, the way I, along? I, I wouldn't... Uh, to some extent. I, I wouldn't say in terms of getting it right, because mm -hmm. it, it, it's not a matter of right and no. wrong. No, no, uh, no. We, uh, uh, when we start off practicing uh, being self-attentive, our self-attentiveness is not so deep. As we go deeper in this path, we are coming closer and closer to the perfect self-attentiveness. When we, one moment of perfect self-attentiveness will annihilate ego. So we haven't yet yeah, reached that That's point. getting it right. That's yeah. getting it right. Yeah, that, that, yeah. yes. But then that, that implies that, that anything else is getting it wrong. We're not getting it wrong. We're moving in the yeah. right direction. It, we, we just haven't yet reached that perfection. We haven't gone deep enough to be aware of ourself in complete isolation from everything else. But, but I, I think people, sorry, yeah, I think but, people want a, a kind of concept that they can grasp that will take them all the way there. But uh, there is no such concept. There's no that, such perfect uh, 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 kind of plan. This uh, is, you, this is why Bhagavan called this vichara. Vichara means investigation. It's a, the, as you investigate, the way becomes clearer and clearer. We know the direction in which we have to go. But as we go further and further along that direction, it becomes clearer and clearer. May I add something, Michael? Yes, certainly. Um, the key thing I understand from Bhagavan's teachings is the whole problem is, is the ego grasping form. Yes. And whenever... Uh, we have any kind of difficulty, it's the ego grasping form. Yes. And, and that, that's it. <laughs> yes. So that same ego, but is, is, whose very nature is to grasp form, needs to try to grasp itself. Because it itself is a formless phantom. So when it grasps itself, it subsides and disappears. That's why Bhagavan says, in that same verse 25, in which he says... Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. That is, if instead of trying to grasp other things, if it tries to grasp itself, it subsides and disappears. That's why we need to be always trying to hold on to ourselves, always to, rather than attending to any other thing. A grasping means attending. We're grasping in our awareness. So rather than grasping anything else in our awareness, we need to grasp ourselves, try to hold on to this fundamental awareness I am. The more we hold on to that, the more we subside, 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 and eventually we will lose ourselves in the... In the the uttermost depth of our own being. The next question is, in situations such as illness causing physical pain, the practice of being awareness seems to subside. In such situations, I remind myself of the two birds of the Ashavasta tree, one experiencing fruits while the other one is a mere witness. Is this the right approach or anything you suggest to not let attention move out of being awareness? The, the, 
for Bert, but it's the, the mere witness that that means it is what that is meant to signify is not that uh, it, being the witness doesn't mean looking on at or on at uh, what is happening. Holding on to our own being is is being the witness that in order to keep ourselves aloof from everything that is happening, we need to hold on to our own being, to our own awareness. I am. That is the only way. Otherwise, if we allow our attention to go out, we become involved in those other things. We become the other bird who is eating the fruit. Attending to anything other than ourselves is eating the fruit. Attending to ourself alone is being the detached witness, unaffected by whatever may be happening. Is, is that a sufficiently clear sufficiently. answer? Yes, thanks so much, Michael. Right. Next question is, uh, what comes first, time or change? When we rise as ego, we experience time and change. But what is more basic, time or change? Thank you. If there were no time, there could be no change. If there were no change, there would be no time. But that is, the two are inseparable. In sleep, for example, there is no there is no time because there's no change because what exists in sleep is only being. So in being, there's neither time nor change. But as soon as we rise as ego, time and change, uh, they're really inseparable. They're they're inseparable. We can say that time is the is the measure of change. The next question is, uh, when trying to do self-inquiry, my thinker, in quotation marks, constantly gives directions on what to do, how to stop the thinker, in quotation marks, from talking, in quotation marks? (laughs) Let anything happen. Let the thinker think whatever it wants to think. Let it give any directions. Your only concern should be, you shouldn't be concerned about the thinker. You should be concerned about your being. The the reality of the thinker is your being. That is what we are investigating. The thinker is ego. And so long as it's thinking to do this, to do that, its attention is going away from itself. That thinker's attention uh, one way you can deal with the thinker, think about yourself alone. Think means attend to yourself alone. And that is thought. The attention to anything other than ourself is a thought. Attention to ourself is the way to bring all thought to a cessation, to, a, to bring about the subsidence of all thought. Michael? Yes. That's my question. Yes. Uh, the thing is, when I'm trying to, you know, do self-inquiry, I'm always thinking, okay, you're there, you're doing it right. Uh, <laughs> or you're not doing it there, you know. How to stop that from happening? The I that thinks I am doing it right, let that I hold on to itself. That That is, it is the nature of the mind to be thinking this thought or that thought. We... we 
but our aim is not to 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 wherever our attention goes that is this type of thinking i'm doing it right i'm not doing it right or whatever this is a, this is allowing our attention away from ourselves what does it matter whether we're doing it right or not let's just attend to ourselves that should be our attitude so we shouldn't feed that little um that little voice that is uh, commenting like that because that's uh, allowing mm. our attention to go away from ourselves okay our attention should only, we we are not concerned with thinking we are not concerned with doing we are concerned with our being just being as we are and we can be as we are only by holding on to our being by attending to our being that means to i am by attending to i am we remain as i am by attending to other things we rise as ego Okay, thank you, Michael. Right. Uh, the next question is: uh, Ramana Maharishi said uh, the universe is a projection of the mind. How does such a huge universe exist in the mind, which is an activity of the brain? <laughs> the the brain is a small part of this vast universe. So the mind is not in the brain. The brain is just a thought in the mind. One of the many thoughts in the mind is the brain. To think that the mind is limited to the brain when this whole you can you you it's your own experience. The whole universe is contained in your mind. When you're thinking about the universe, it's you're you're able to know the universe because it's appearing in your mind. It's not appearing outside your mind. You can't know what's outside your mind if at all there's anything outside your mind. You know this universe because it appears in your mind. Just like when you're dreaming, the whole dream universe it exists in your mind. In your dream, you may be going to some um, research laboratory where they've got powerful telescopes that are seeing. Um, uh, uh, stars that existed uh, millions of light years away or whatever. All that vast universe that you're studying in your dream exists only in your mind. Just like that universe exists in your mind, this universe exists in your mind. How can we know anything outside our mind? But our mind is the field of awareness in which all things appear. And disappear. Is that an adequate answer to that question? Um, the next question is: uh, Do we influence the vasanas of others? Of course, we cannot change their or our destiny, but can we influence their vasanas? That is. Vasanas, no, we could, that is, the only vasanas we know are our own vasanas. If we see, we can see the behavior of others. And we, it, so it, it, an explanation is given, like Bhagavan gives an explanation in verse 19, uh, sorry, I mean paragraph 19 of Nana. But uh, there are not two minds, a good mind and a bad mind. It's vasanas that are two of two kinds, subha and asubha. Subha means they're good vasanas, they're agreeable, um, virtuous vasanas. And uh, asubha means they're disagreeable or, or wicked or bad vasanas. 
he said, when the mind is under the sway of good vasanas, we call it a good, uh, of a subhavasanas, we call it a good mind. When it's under the sway of a subhavasanas, we call it a bad mind. So, but so long as we see others, their minds seem to be influenced by vasanas. But those others exist in whose view? They only exist in our view. So it's only, actually, it's all the play of our own vasanas. Bhagavan also said the whole universe is nothing but a projection of our own vasanas. When he gave, uh, when he explained the uh, uh, appearance of the universe, in using the analogy of a cinema projector, he said the, the film reel in the projector is the, is the vasanas. It's the vasanas that are projected outwardly as this vast universe. So all the others and their vasanas are nothing but a projection of your vasanas. So in other words, whatever vasanas you suppose others have are just a projection of your own vasanas. Our aim is not even to influence our own vasanas. Our aim is not to be swayed by our vasanas. By holding on to self-attentiveness, we that is the vishaya vasanas are our inclination to attend to other things. So when we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are not yielding ourselves to that inclination to attend to other things. So the more we hold on to self-attentiveness, the weaker those inclinations become. So in that way we are influencing, we are weakening our vishaya vasanas to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness. By not allowing the vasanas to influence us, we are thereby weakening them. So we don't have to be concerned about others' vasanas. Our own vasanas are quite enough problem for us. Let us deal with our own vasanas. And how do we deal with them? By not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them, by holding on to self-attentiveness. The next question is, um, I'm a person and so is everyone around me, but I'm different from them as I'm the only one endowed with awareness. The ego, the ego took me to project my world of people and things through this. Is this the correct understanding? No, because you're taking yourself to be the person and you're taking... Um, you're taking ego to be something other than you. You are the ego that is taking this person to be, um, to to be yourself. This person is not in, uh, No person is endowed with awareness. That is, a person consists of the five sheaths: uh, body, life, mind, intellect, and will. All of these are jada. None of them have awareness. What has awareness is ego. Because ego is aware of itself as I am this person, this person seems to be aware. That is, because I take myself to be Michael, if someone asks, is Michael aware? Oh, yes, I'm aware, because I'm identifying myself with Michael. So, because it seems to me that I am Michael and therefore Michael is aware, every other person seems to be aware. So, if Michael is aware, every other person is also aware. But the that, that is as true as, as it is that Michael is aware, so true it is that others are aware. But is Michael aware? No, Michael is not aware. What is aware is that which is aware of itself as I am Michael. That is ego. 
So we, we, when you say me, you're referring to ego, not to the person you take yourself to. If you take that person to be me, then the ego is fully, fully in charge then because it's risen and said, I am this person. This person is me. So our aim is to go within and thereby separate ourselves from this person by investigating ego, or rather investigating the source from which ego rises, which is our own being, ego subsides, and thereby we separate ourselves from this person we now seem to be. We seem to be this person so long as we're looking outwards, attending to anything other than ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, ego subsides, and to the extent to which ego subsides, we thereby separate ourselves from this person. And the next question is, uh, when you say turn your attention within, my question is, who is doing the directing to turn within? Is it the ego? Does that mean we turn to the ego? Ego is turning its attention back on itself. That is, the nature of ego is to attend to things other than itself. So we are turning our attention back towards ourselves. By turning our attention back towards ourselves, we as ego subside because the nature of ego is to attend to other things. So when we turn our attention back on ourselves, we subside. And if we, if we attend to ourselves keenly enough, we thereby merge back into our source, which is pure awareness, which is what is, which is the awareness that is never aware of anything other than itself. So it's only the keen self-attentiveness that can, it, it, that is the only means by which we can permanently dissolve back into our source, back into the pure awareness that we actually are. So, yes, the effort is made. Self-investigation is only for ego. It's only ego that needs to investigate itself. Our real nature, pure awareness, doesn't never needs to investigate itself because it always knows itself just by being itself. The whole problem, the, the problem is for ego. The problem is ego. And the solution is for ego to turn its attention back on itself to see who am I. Thank you. Thank you. Right. You answer the question. <laughs> right, good. Thank you. I don't want to answer the question. You yes, put the words yes. in my mouth. I'm, I'm, yeah, because I always wondered, now who's doing the directing? When you say turn, who's asking It is ego. Turn? It's ego, of course. It is the ego. Yes. So everything is focusing on the ego. Yes. And then the ego subsides. After ego repeated. is the problem. E and mm. the solution can be found only in that the ego alone is the solution. Ego looking outwards is the problem. Ego looking back within is the solution. As simple as that. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Bhagavan, in, in Akshramlai, verse uh, 43, I think it is, uh, 44, um, that is what Aranacha told Bhagavan. Daily, uh, turning within, daily see yourself with the inner eye. So, to whom is that instruction given? That is the instruction the Guru gives to ego. So, it's ego that has to turn its attention back within. When it turns its attention back within, it finds ego, it finds Guru is ever shining in its heart as its own being, and thereby it merges in that. That is what Bhagavan says, Terium, it will be known. It becomes clear, yes. 
Yes. It's clear to the extent to which we look within. Mm. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Aranacha taught Bhagavan that in words, uh, in silence. Because we mm. are too dull to understand that silence, Bhagavan has translated Aranacha's silent teaching into words for us. That is, Aranacha had to appear in human form in order to translate its own silent teaching into words. For the benefit of people like us. <laughs> dull heads like us, yes. <laughs> yes. The, my problem is, okay, I sit down for meditation, I try my very best to what you are saying, turn within. But in our everyday daily, you know, uh, our chores where we're doing, we have to plan, we have to think, we have to use our mind most of the time. We think we have to, but we don't have to. Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph of Nana, when that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all karyas, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? In other words, it's not necessary for us to think anything whatsoever. Because as he said in the previous verse, however much burden you place on God, he will bear all of it. So even the burden of thinking you can place on him. That is the path Bhagavan is showing us. It is not necessary for us to think of anything except ourselves. In other words, we're we, not necessary to attend to anything except our own being. Attending to anything other than ourselves is carrying the luggage on our head. Attending to ourselves is putting the luggage aside and leaving it all to the train to take care of everything. Okay, so you're saying we, we have no uh, agency at all. We don't plan. We have agency so long as we are planning, but it's not necessary for us to plan. We can leave everything to him. We right, okay. <laughs> I'll put a very personal question. I, right. don't, you know, I don't mind telling this. We plan to go to Trunamalai right. in, in January, mid-January. Yes. And then now there is this uh, problem about uh, COVID being, uh, you know, becoming rampant. So yeah. the... The dilemma whether to go or not to go. Now, I've surrendered to Bhagawan. Bhagawan, please, you, you have to decide. But how am I to know what decision to take? Because I'm really, really, really keen to go, to, if, you know. to if, if it is Bhagawan's will that you should go to Tiruvannamala in January, you cannot mm. avoid going to Tiruvannamala, even if you wanted to avoid it. So you can... That is that one Parameshwara Shakti, that is Bhagavan himself, is driving all these carriers. It's going, yes. if, you're to, if it's his will for you to go in January, you will go in January. Yes, 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 certainly, yep. But trouble is that we think it depends on us. That's where the problem lies. But there is this, this uh, you know, planning, as I say, you know, we have to do what, what we have to do before we uh, embark on a trip. So what and lies ahead, whether we would contract COVID or not, and then be stranded in a, India where we don't have where we know too many friends or relatives. Now. Yeah. It, that is the, the worry. Though I have prayed to, you know, Bhagavan yes. to give me the right answer. There's still a few more days left. Yes. Even what would you do? Yes, even your planning is a part of his 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 um, 
He's he's make if he want if you were to go to India, certain planning is necessary. Whatever planning is necessary, he will make you do that planning. So even yeah. let that let him take care of that. But how do I do that? By turning within and subsiding <laughs> back. Then whatever that is, as Bhagavan said in the first sentence of the note to his mother. Um, avarabha prarabdha prakaram adhikanavan angangirindu atvipan. According to the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning Bhagavan himself, being there, there will make the act. So, if it is your prarabdha to go to Tiruvannamalai in January, yeah, he will make you do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, make the decisions and everything. But trouble is, yes. you think I have to make the decision. I have to decide. I have to know what Bhagavan's will is. Yes, because I don't think I'm that intuitive. Some people think that they are very intuitive. I don't think I'm very intuitive. I just You surrender. don't have to be intuitive. Bhagavan doesn't qualify what he says in that first sentence. According to their, their prarabdha, if they have intuition, he will make them act. Whether you have intuition or no intuition, he will make mm. you do whatever. It, it, that doesn't mean all our actions are driven by Bhagavan. It means all the actions that are necessary in order for our mm. prarabdha to unfold, we will yeah. be made to do. So if it and, is your prarabdha to go to Tiruvannamalai, you, yeah. you have to get visa, you have to get tickets, you have to all, all sorts of planning yes. is necessary. Yeah. Let him yeah. make you make all that, that planning. Leave yes. it all to him. This is specifically to about him, about going being seeing his samadhi, going round the giri yes. doing the giri Specifically, this yes. you know is my was my dream for many months, uh, for a year, I think. Right. And then now what if I get stranded there? That was my worry. And you know, my husband and I are like, you know, shall we cancel? And it means a lot of money wasted if we yes. cancel the trip. Yes, yeah. But even that, leave that to Bhagavan. If <laughs> if it's his will that you should go, then you 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 will go. If I'm it's your, yearning to go. Yes. If it's his will that you should not be affected by COVID, you will not be affected yeah. by COVID. If it's his will that you should be affected by COVID, you're going to be affected by COVID anyway. So it's yeah. you yeah. just have yes. to understand what what is destined to happen will happen. Um. Nadapadu entadaisenum niladu. What is what <laughs> will happen will not stop, yeah. however much you try to obstruct it. And the other side mm -hmm. of the same coin, uh naduvadu What will endrum naduvadu enmuichikinum naduvadu? What will never happen will not happen. Will not. So it, it's already what is going to happen is already determined. Yes, and yes. whatever you need to do in order to facilitate that, he will make you do that. Everything has been done. So, <laughs> yes, okay, then That's leave the it best. all to him. Right? Have burden on him. Yes, yes. And Thank as you. it is, as the same Bhagavan says, as Krishna in the Gita, you have the right, you have the adhikara to the actions. Not to the fruit thereof. So mm. you you've got this. You you have this right. You 
in accordance with your prarabdha, you've made all these plans, you've got the tickets and everything. What is the outcome is in his hands. I just, yes, I just got a message, you know, Michael, yes. sorry to interrupt. It's yes. from Suzanne saying, I'm in Tiru now. It's such a blessing. Come. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. So, yes. <laughs> oh, come. I, I have been like too, too much yearning for Bhagavan, too much. I, yes. I can't bear not to go. Yes. It's that bad. So he wants you to come. So you're going. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm going then. <laughs> and suppose, supposing it is not his will, something will obstruct it. But if it yes. is, it, it seems that it's his will. So just go along with the flow. Mm. Nothing will happen then. <laughs> that much. Don't even believe nothing will happen. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. It's going to happen, yes. Yeah. We, we shouldn't believe, oh, because I've, I surrendered to Bhagavan, everything good should happen in my life. That is not <laughs> surrender. Yes, yes. Take <laughs> as it comes. If Take you surrender to Bhagavan, let COVID come, let disease, death, let anything come or go. What does it matter? I'm yeah. surrendered to Bhagavan. We shouldn't have any like or dislike. Yes, yes. That, then uh, only uh, it's surrender. Yeah, the only problem is my husband is was coming with me, and he, he was rather you know apprehensive. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Well, Bhagavan will. If it is Bhagavan's will, it will happen. And whatever, happen. I mean, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Nothing can happen that is not his will. Yes, and what his yes. will can never, what is his will can never be stopped. Yes, especially going to see him. Yes, right, right, <laughs> right. Yes, it's it's just too much to bear not to go. Yes, it's like I can't wait another another year, another month. No. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it was so wonderful, no. Suzanne. Thank you, thank you, Michael. Really wonderful. Right. Your your satsangs are really, really so touching. It's not me. It's all Bhagavan. And your book is your book is one of the best. It's excellent. I really, really enjoy every page. I read it every night before I go to bed. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, Your book is so it, well it's, explained. It's not me. It's all Bhagavan. If, if there's anything yes. useful in anything I say or do or write or anything, it can come only from Bhagavan because he's the source of all, all clarity, of all love. So yes. it's all only it, him. It's the... <laughs> yes. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Much appreciated. All thanks to Bhagavan. All thanks to Bhagavan. Um, among the questions Shalini uh, sent, the first one says, um, I have one question. When we practice Atmavichara, if our attention is outwards, thoughts will rise in our mind. But if we turn our attention within, shouldn't thoughts subside to the same extent um, that we're turning within, if we are turning our back on them? Yes, if we are turning within. But the thing is, but though we are turning within, as Bhagavan says in the 10th paragraph of Nana, the 
the Vishaya Vasanas are rising, constantly rising in countless numbers like ocean waves. Those Vishaya Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to thought. They are the inclinations to think. So if we allow ourselves to be swayed by those inclinations, our attention goes outwards again and we get caught up in thoughts. So, uh, so long as we hold on to the self-attentiveness, in other words, so long as our attention is directed back within, we, we are thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas. But if for a moment we allow ourselves to be swayed by any Vishaya Vasana, again our attention goes outwards. So, to the extent to which we're turning within, other thoughts will subside. To the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas, our attention will go outwards and the thoughts will arise. That is, the attention going outwards and the arising of thoughts are one and the same thing. So I hope that's a clear answer to that. Um, the next question is, is there anything except the I that is not an object? No, we alone are, we alone are not an object. Now, as ego, we are the subject. But what we actually are is not even the subject. We are the reality of the subject. We are the underlying being. Are, the I, in, in, the subject is ego, the chit granti, the mixed, the adjunct completed awareness, I am this body. The I am in the I am this body, that is what we actually are. So the ego is not an object and its reality is not an object. Anything I see is not me. So whenever I'm reading the, the question, the reading on the question. So whenever I see something, um, it may be a thought or a chain of thoughts, a feeling, an experience of anything whatever, it's not me. Yes, exactly. Whatever is seen, whatever is known as an object is not us. When I discover that I am attending to something that is not me, I return to attend to myself. Yes, that is the meaning of when Bhagavan says, investigate to whom does it appear? That investigating to whom is turning our attention away from what has appeared back towards ourself, the one to whom it's appeared. Um, and then the question continues, but an immediately an object will appear, and at the time I attend to objects, and the time I attend to objects is long, and I'm not able to attend to myself even for a fraction of a second. We are all able to attend to ourselves at least for a fraction of a second. But trouble is, we we underrate the value of those moments of self-attention. Every moment of self-attentiveness is worth many years of meditating or on, of any other type of meditation. That is, this is such a, a powerful and precious practice. So we should learn to treasure, to value every moment of self-attentiveness. Yes, it is the nature of the mind to go outward. So whenever we try to turn it back within, we can hold on to that self-attentiveness the deeper we go within, the shorter will be the, the, the time that we can hold on to it. If we are holding on to a 
to a, a tenuous current of self-attentiveness, that is a, a relatively superficial self-attentiveness, we may be able to hold on to it for some time. The deeper we try to go within, the more the vasanas will rush to try and pull us out again. So it, it, we shouldn't be disheartened because we are not able to hold on to deep self-attentiveness for more than a moment. Every moment is worth it. Um, so it's the same, what, what this person is describing is the same for all of us. How do I know that I'm on the right path? So long as you're attending to yourself, you're on the right path. If you're allowing your attention to go away towards anything else, anything that you know or see or hear or experience or feel, your attention is going in the wrong direction. So long as your attention is turning back towards you, the one to whom all these other things appear, you're on the right path. And um, uh, another person has asked, the reasoning and explanation of the three states helps us to discover that we exist beyond the three states as I am, independent from objects such as the body and the world. But is there an is there a reasoning that our real nature is non-dual, or does this depend on faith in the words of the Guru? No, it's our own experience. In sleep every day, we remain without anything else, without any second thing. We alone remain. That means our, our, our existence is non-dual. The very fact that we can exist without any other thing means that our existence is non-dual. The meaning of non-dual is one without a second. So that is our experience in sleep. We are one without a second. There's no second thing in sleep. So if, if our nature was more than one thing, we couldn't stay remain in that state of oneness in sleep. The fact that we exist in a state of perfect oneness, oneness without any second thing in sleep, is itself clear proof from our own experience that our real nature is one without a second. So this present state of ego, where we're aware of so many other things, that is not our natural state. This is an unnatural state. So our natural state, our real nature, is just to be one without a second. Does uh, those are the three questions that Shalini left me? Does anyone have any other questions? Michael, someone has put a question in the general chat. Okay. Hello, Michael. Is it possible to do self inquiry for the ego after it discards the body, or is it possible only as a human? Ego cannot exist for a moment without identifying a body as I. So now we experience ourselves as I am this body, which we, we now identify ourselves with a human body. Um, it is sometimes said that the human birth is a special birth. It's easier to attain in this uh, human body. Um, but it's not necessarily the case. We, we know that Bhagavan was able to turn Kau Lakshmi's mind within, and so she merged back in the heart. Um, at the last moment of her life. So even in the case of animals, it is possible. But let's not worry about other 
we, if we, if in our next life, if we're born as a cow, whether we'll be able to follow this. Now we have a liking to turn our attention within. So long as we have that liking, let us try and cultivate it as much as we can. We don't know how far we are from our goal, how how close we are to being willing to let go of everything and surrender ourselves completely. If we don't merge back into our source during the lifetime of this body, ego will then this body is this the lifetime of this body is just a dream. When this dream comes to an end, the dreamer, namely ego, remains. So we will then have another life. Uh, another dream we'll dream ourselves to be some person probably it'll be it will be another human birth but even if it's a another a birth as say a cow or a dog or a cat or um a horse or something doesn't matter because we've now cultivating this love to turn our attention within that will continue even in whatever form we take ourselves to be. So it's not dependent on the form that we take ourselves to be. The key to success in this path is love to turn within. The more we try to turn our attention within in, in the lifetime of this body, the more that love will grow. And that will, con that will continue with us, whatever be our next life. So uh, it's not necessarily dependent on a human life. Um, but it, 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 as I explained earlier, what is to investigate is ego. Ego, so long as it allows its attention to go outward, it always experiences itself as I am this body, whatever the body may be. To the extent to which ego turns within, the, the, it, it Ego is thereby, we are thereby separating ourselves from this body. So ego subsides. And when ego subsides fully back into the source, we completely separate ourselves from the body. That is the dissolution of ego. Until that point, we have to continue this practice. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. Does anyone have any other questions or can anyone see any other questions in the chat box? Could I, could I, um, yes, certainly. Question. Um, uh, I think, um, it could be semantic, but, um, uh, there's some aspects of, um, how you, uh, are, um, explaining the ego that, um, that I, I sort of kind of, I, I kind of miss. I don't quite feel I, I grasp. And if I could just say what I feel my yeah. ego is. Um, I, to me, it's, um, I, I believe my ego is just, is like a shape. It's um, everything I know about myself. And this, this um, self entity is something I'm identified with. It, so it's like, um, it's a bit like a stone of a certain shape. And it's like, I think I'm this stone, this insentient stone, and it's got, a, and I can describe the shape, you know, it's a bit bulbous that end, it's sort of broken that end. And in the same way, my ego, like my the story of myself, my life, my name, my appearance, um, everything I associate um, with that, you know, all my circumstances. Um, so it's like that. It's it's uh, it's somehow flooded my mind, but it isn't actually me. It's um, something I'm just identified with it. Um, 
I think the uh, what uh, the um, the little bit the difficulty that I have with the way that you put it is that um, the ego you indicate it's the ego that is identified with the body and the personal self and so yes. on. So uh, so it's that bit that I, I I'm struggling a little bit with. It's uh, it seems to be like a halfway house between uh, the the structure the ego as a structure. And the self, which is who I truly am, my true self, it seems to be like there's um, uh, there's a sort of a, a bit of both caught up in in this ego, and it's this that is identifying with. Yes. Uh, but yeah. to, to me, the ego is the structure itself. It's like I'm just looking at it, like uh, I might look at a picture or something, and this picture is flooding my mind, um, and I'm identified with it. So the ego is is not not quite what is, is it doesn't seem to be what is um, identifying or what is thinking that it is the body. Uh, I, I see it really as the identification itself, the uh, the structure itself, the, the the thought of me, and and everything about that that is flooding my mind. So I think of it as that way, uh, and then if I realise that. Uh, that is an illusion. The my true self is uh, completely apparent. Um, so, okay. so that's just how, how how I look at it at the moment. Okay, ego is not anything you identify with. Ego is that which identifies itself with the person that you seem to be. So ego is not a structure. Bhagavan, in verse 25, Bhagavan describes ego as a formless phantom. But to, to understand this best, verse 24 of Uludhunapta explains this very clearly. Bhagav what Bhagavan says in verse 24 is, um, jada urul nanenadu, the, the jada body does not say I. Jada means non-aware. That is, the, why did the body not say I? Because it's not. When when he says does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying it's not aware of itself as I. Why is it not aware of itself as I? Because it is Jada. Because it's not aware. And when he's talking about the body, he's not just talking about the physical body. Because in an earlier verse, in verse five, he says he he defines what he means by body, saying. Uh, Uru pancha koza uru. So the same word he uses for body, and he said the body is a form of five sheaths. Those five sheaths mean the physical body, the life or prana, the mind, the manamaya kosha, the intellect, the vijnanamaya kosha, and the will, all the vasanas, which is the anandamaya kosha. These five uh, body, life, mind, intellect, and will. Of, of, uh, what make up what Bhagavan calls the body. In other words, the whole person is is the body. So the body does not say I because it's jada. It's not aware of itself as I. That is, not only is the physical body jada, but prana, the life is jada, the mind, that mind in this context means all the thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, and so on. These are all objects known by us. The intellect, this is the reasoning and judging faculty. This is something known by us. The Anandamaya Kosha is the will. That consists of all the vasanas. 
or the inclinations. They are also objects known by us. We experience Vipassanas. So none of these, uh, these are all Jadas, so they don't say I. In other words, none of these are ego. Then in the next sentence, he says, Satchit Udiyadu. Satchit does not rise. Satchit means that, that pure being, pure awareness that we actually are, that doesn't rise. Then in the third sentence, he says, um, in between one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. So this one thing, I, because it rises, it's not Satchit, because Satchit doesn't rise. And because it's aware of itself as I, it's not the body, because the body is not aware of itself as I. So ego is neither the body, nor is it Satchit. It's something that rises in between. When he says it rises in between, that has been two, two implications of that. That is, firstly, the only link between Satchit, which is what is real, and the body, which is just an unreal appearance, is this what comes in between, this ego. In other words, the body seems to exist only in the view of ego. The body doesn't exist independent of ego. The other significance of this word in between, if, if you hear, if you read a story in the newspaper and you're not sure whether it's true or false, you may ask your fr a friend of yours, I read this in the newspaper today, but is this really true or is it false? Your friend may say, it's neither true nor false. It's somewhere in between. What does he mean by saying it's somewhere in between? He means it's not entirely true. It's not entirely false. It's, got, it's a mixture of fact and fiction. So it's got some elements of truth, some elements of falsehood. In the same way, this ego that rises between Satchit and the body, it takes on the properties of both. From, I, from Satchit, it borrows that fundamental awareness I am, that awareness of our own existence. That is Satchit. And from a body, it takes the form. So it limits itself as the form of a body. That's what he means by it rises as the extent of a body. That means it's limiting itself within the body. So it is conflating these two contrary things, this Satchit, I am, and the body are conflated together. Then in the next sentence, he says, this is Chit-Jadagranti. It's called Chit-Jadagranti because it is a conflation of Chit and Jada. The Chit portion is I am. The Jada portion is this body. Because these two are taken together, because they're conflated, they are entangled like a knot. So it's called the knot the, the, the consciousness, non-consciousness not, we can call it. Um, and then he goes on to say, it's a chichagranti um, bandham, it's bondage. Because once we are, once we are bound, once, once this not comes into place, we are bound to this body, so it's bondage. Um, bandham, uh, jivan, it is the jiva. The, the individual soul. It is nupame, the subtle body. It is ahande, uh, um, ego. Ichamsara, this samsara, and manam. 
So all these words, what they ultimately refer to is only this one eye, but rises, but is neither the body, nor is it satchit. It's that which rises, I, taking the two and identifying itself as I am this body. That's verse 24. Then in verse 25, in the last line of verse 25, he describes ego as uh, uruvatra payahande. Uruvatra means uh, formless or devoid of form. Pay means an evil spirit or a phantom. The reason he, uh, uh, and the hande means ego. So the, 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 uh, the formless phantom ego is what he means. So the reason he says that ego is formless is it has no form of its own. It's got no structure of its own. The reason he says it is a phantom or an evil spirit is it's got no substance of its own. It's, it borrows its substance from Satchit. It borrows its form from a body. But of its own, it's neither a form nor is it a substance. So it doesn't actually exist at all. It is, it's a phantom that arises between these two. And then he says, that that's the, the description he gives him the last line. But beginning from the beginning of the verse, he says, grasping form, it comes into existence. But the form it grasps to come into existence is the form of a body. Grasping form, it stands. So it cannot come into existence or stand without grasping the form of a body as itself. Then he says, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Here, the form he's referring to is all the other phenomena. That is having, once we take this body to the eye, our mind is constantly feeding on other phenomena. Now, all phenomena are forms. And form there means anything other than ego. So all objects are forms, all phenomena are forms, because ego is formless. The subject has no form. It's the objects that have form. Uh, so, uh, so grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvitu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. Tedinal otampidikum, if sought, that is, if it seeks itself, if it tries to see who it is, otampidikum, it will take flight. It will run away because it doesn't actually exist. We seem to be ego so long as we're grasping the form of a body as ourself. If instead of uh, uh, letting our attention go outwards to grasp all these forms, if we turn the attention back to ourselves to see who am I, ego itself has no form. So when it tries to grasp itself, it subsides and dissolves back into its source. So... When you were saying ego is a structure that I identify with, ego is not the structure. Ego is the I that identifies yeah, with yeah. that. I Ego is I. But mm -hmm. the word yeah. in Tamil that Bhagavan uses is ahande. Uh, ahande is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word ahanta. The meaning, exact meaning of ahanta is I-ness. Hmm. So ego so is the I but identifies itself with other things. So it, ego is not what it identifies with. This person, Michael, is not, a, is not ego. Neither Michael Ridgway nor Michael James is ego. But ego identifies itself as I am Michael. So, so that so it, which identifies itself, that I that it, takes itself to be Michael, that is ego. Yeah. 
So it's the, it's the principle that um, causes us to make this mistake. So it's yes. um, the sense of, of identifying with this, um, this structure, the body. Uh, it's not the structure, the body itself. It's the, no, uh, no, it's no. the identifying the self, the sense of I am this uh, body or I am yes. Michael. It's, yes. that, it's that I that identifies with yes, it. Exactly. So, um, yeah. The yeah. very nature but even so, of even so, that I doesn't. Even so, that that ego I. Even though, even so, that doesn't actually exist because it's really, as you're saying, it's just borrowing from both the reality and the unreality yes, somehow. But, and but if, you, if it's not really there, it's not really there. But mm. the other things are also not really there because in the next verse he says. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what it is is giving up everything. That is, what actually exists is only satchit. It's only when ego rises that the body and world and everything else seem to exist, because they all exist only in the view of ego. So it's like the mistake is radiating out uh, in a way. It, yes. it, the, the repercussions of it are, are infinite. Yes. In sense. But once you get rid of that initial, yes. uh, once you realize that that initial thing doesn't actually exist, everything disappears. Exactly. Everything exactly. That, that sprouts from it, as it were. Yeah. That is uh, simultaneously with our rise as ego, we project and grasp a body as I. That is, our rising as ego and our projecting and grasping a body as I are all one process. It's not, it's not first we rise and then we project and then we grasp. It's all just one thing. So that, that is, as that's why Bowen says, grasping form, it comes into existence. That is, the very nature of the rising of ego entails the projection and, and identification with the body. Once we identify yourself with a body, through the five senses of that body, we project a world. So everything else depends on ego for its seeming existence. Because everything exists. It's only when we rise as ego that other things seem to exist. So in, um... we see ego seems to exist so long as we're attending to those other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Only yeah. when we turn our uh, attention, to the extent to which we turn our attention back within, does ego subside and dissolve. When we see ourselves as we actually are, then only do we truly know ego never existed. It, it exists only through us not looking at it. Like exactly, sort of, exactly. Um, uh, it, it, can't, it can't sustain a being looked at. It's yes, just, exactly. When you look at it, it disappears yeah. like mirage, yes. sort of thing. This is, this is the unique um, uh, thing that Bhagavan has revealed. The nature of ego, ego rises, stands, and flourishes by attending to things other than itself. If it attends to itself, it subsides and disappears. That's what Bhagavan is saying in verse 25 of Uludunapadu. This is something, to the best of my knowledge, this has not been revealed in any scripture or by anyone so clearly like Bhagavan has done. So this is the nature of ego. So we mm. rise and stand as ego by attending to things other than ourselves. By attending to ourselves, we will subside and dissolve back into our source. 
So, so long as we attend to anything other than ourselves, we seem to be ego. Ego seems to exist. It never actually exists, but it seems to exist. And because ego seems to exist, everything else seems to exist. But if we turn our attention back to investigate this ego, ego will subside and dissolve back into its source. And that, as Bhagavan says in verse 26, that is giving up everything. Because when ego ceases to exist, everything else ceases to exist. Without the dreamer, there's no dream. This is all a dream. The dreamer is ego. So really, there's no point in in trying to identify and define the ego, you know, because... No, it's, it's a formless phantom. It's a formless phantom. And, um, uh, Look so for it no, and it takes flight. There's no way of flight. describing it, exactly, mm. because it can't be described in terms of any kind of concept. It's No, no, no. Look at we, it. we can understand its nature is to, uh, is to uh, come into existence grasping form, to stand grasping form, to... Uh, feed itself and flourish by grasping form. We understand that is the nature of ego. But if we try to find what is that who has such it has such a nature, we there's no such thing to be found. But could I just um, branch it out just slightly? I mean, uh, there is a sort of there is um, a, just a, a common view of what an ego is. If somebody says uh, so and so is very egotistical. It means they want to be flattered a lot, and they are—they're they're full of themselves. And you think of Hitler, just the yeah. personification of yeah. ego. Um, is that relevant? You know, like um, that—that is—that is a particularly gross manifestation of ego. That is a very strong ego, strongly mm -hmm. identified. Mm -hmm. I—I am—I'm special. I'm better than everyone else. Everyone should. That, that is the, the ego in a fully flourished ego. And in, in the case of those of us who are trying to follow Bhagavan's teaching, we, we hope that at least to some extent this ego has, has subsided a little. We're not so egotistical, or hopefully we're not. We, we shouldn't be. Um, yeah. But it's the same thing. Ego, ego is, ego is a, Latin, a Greek and Latin word that means I. It's yeah. a word that, both in Greek and in Latin, it means I. So that's all ego means is I. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's referring to I not as, that in the context of Bhagavan's teachings, as in normal parlance, it's not referring to I as it actually is. No. What we actually are is, is just pure being. But yeah. the, the, the ego is referring to that I that is identified with other things. And the stronger yeah. the identification, the more egotistical we will be. Yeah. I'm better than everyone. I'm, I, I'm superior. Everyone should regard me. That's a big, strong ego. Yeah. The more ego subsides, the more humble we become. That is because our identification, we, we, we are beginning to see through. We still identify ourselves as I am this person, but we... We are beginning to see through, we're beginning to recognize the falsity of this identification. To the extent to which we recognize that falsity, we become humble, we subside. And we can recognize that most effectively by looking within more and more and more. So, so when, I, um, when I do the vichara, when I do self-inquiry, um, it feels to me like I'm asking myself, who am I really? 
yes. So in a sense, uh, um, uh, I'm asking myself, well, literally, who am I really? Um, uh, not so much. What is my ego? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so, um, that, that, that is why Bhagavan said in that in that passage in um, in uh, Maharshi's Gospel that I referred to earlier. Bhagavan explains ego is chitchadagranti. In your investigation into the source of ego, Ahambriti, hmm. you take the essential chit aspect. That is, we are, ego is the mixed, the adjunct mixed awareness. I am this body. But we are not investigating the body. The body means all the five sheaths. We're not investigating any of the five sheaths. We're investigating the eye that is identifying itself with these five sheaths. So that uh, that is we're taking the essential chit aspect, the eye aspect of, of that uh, mixed awareness. I am this body. Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very helpful. That's uh, clarifying it very well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank for, for channeling through. Uh, Right. I, I'm just trying teaching. to point out what Bhagavan yeah. has taught us. I'm yeah, not really... exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's, uh, thank you. Okay, Michael, right. it's Tony here. Sorry, yes. sorry. Um, there was a, a supplementary clarification from one of the people here okay. uh, titled AR to the previous question. It says, Michael, that was my question, which is, is it possible to do self-inquiry as a, excuse my pronunciation, Sukshama Sharira, subtle body, is what, what, the, what the, um, the questioner meant. Okay. Can they do self-inquiry as a, as a subtle body? That is, Bhagavan has said, the body is a, is a, Udal Panchakosa Uru, the body is a form composed of five sheaves. These things are explained in many different ways. Sometimes these five sheaves are classified into three bodies. The, the, the physical body is called stula sarira. Then the next three sheaves, the pranamaya kosha, the manamaya kosha, and the vijnanamaya kosha are called sushma sarira. And then the, the, the final sheaf, the anandamaya kosha, is called karana sarira. These are the three bodies. Uh, stula sarira means the gross body, physical body. Sukshma sarira means subtle body. And karana sarira means causal body. It's causal because the vasanas are what give rise to everything else. Um, of course, it's ego that underlies the vasanas, eh? because they're ego's vasanas. Um, it, and it is in many texts it is said, in the waking state, we identify the gross body as ourself. In dream, we take the uh, sukshma sarira, the subtle body, to be ourself. And in sleep, only the causal body remains. This is not Bhagavan's teaching. This is th That is, many different explanations are given to suit people of different levels of understanding. What Bhagavan said about this is, in the waking state, the, the body we experienced in dream, we may take it to be a subtle body because he said, oh, that, meant, that dream was just a mental state, so it was all just mental. But when we're actually dreaming, that dream body seems just as physical as this body. It doesn't seem to be a, a subtle body. It seems to be a gross body. So in, all, in both waking and dream, all five sheaths are there.
That is, we are aware of ourselves as a physical body. That physical body has it's alive, so it's got prana operating in it, breathing, and all the other physiological processes are going on in it. There's a mind operating in it, there's an intellect operating in it, and there's a will operating in it. So all these five are present in both waking and dream. That is, this is Bhagavan Darshan. In sleep, none of these are, though it is said in some texts that the, the, the Karana Sarira remains in sleep, that is not what Bhagavan taught us. Sometimes he would talk from that perspective for those who weren't ready to go deeper. But if we think about it, in, e in sleep, there is no ego. Since there's no ego, how can any of the other five, how can any of the sheaths remain without ego? So whenever we rise as ego, we we project a body consisting of these five sheaths. So whenever we whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, all the five sheaths we're experiencing, whenever ego dissolves and subsides back into its source, all the bodies dissolve along with ego. So there's no such state as a state in which we experience only the subtle body as I. It is sometimes said, another explanation that is given, but uh, if you commit suicide, you will wander as a ghost. Or there may be other reasons. Some, someone's life is prematurely ended in a war or something, they may wander as a ghost. Or if they're murdered, they may wander as a ghost. People have so many beliefs about ghosts and things. And one explanation that is given about ghosts is but a ghost is separated from a gross body. They've got no physical body. Um, so they've they've got the they've got the prana and the, the, they, they've got only the sukshma sarira. So along with the pranamaya kosha come all the things like hunger, thirst, and all these things. It, though the ghost will be hungry and thirsty, because it doesn't have a gross body, it cannot uh, satisfy its hunger and thirst. This is an explanation that is given about the torment of, of being a ghost. Um, there may be some truth in that. Maybe a ghost is not able to satisfy its hunger and thirst. But even to say that the ghost doesn't have a gross body, the very fact that if, if a ghost is aware of a, of a world around it, it will be aware of itself located in a place in that world. So if that world is physical, but it will have a it won't have a, a a gross physical body, but it'll have a subtle physical body. So there, there will always be the appearance of a physical body there in some form, even if it's an ethereal physical body, it's still a physical body. So, but all these different explanations are given to different types of questions. But Bhagavan keeps things very, very simple. He says the body is a form of five sheaths, therefore all five are included in the term body. He's very, very clear and explicit about that in verse 5 of Uludhanapadu. So in waking and dream, all five sheaths are there. That is, all these five sheaths are only mental because they're all a mental projection. So the, the, this body in waking is no more gross than the body in dream. The body in dream is no more subtle than the body in waking. It's the same. So we never experience, we never rise as ego without experiencing all five sheaths as I. And when we don't rise as ego, there's no five, there are no sheaths at all because they exist only in the view of ego. So we don't have to worry about uh, uh, doing it in the subtle body. 
one further clarification about this to add to the confusion. It is often in many texts it is said when it is asked, when the gross body dies, what is reincarnated? In many texts it is said the subtle body. So many people think, oh, the subtle body means the pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and vijnanamaya kosha. These are reincarnated. This is why, to clarify that that is not the case, Bhagavan in, in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, when he, after describing ego, he says, this is chitcharagranti, uh, bondage, jiva, nupame. Nupame means subtle body. Likewise, in the fourth paragraph of Nana, Towards the end, he said the mind is what is called subtle body. So mind there means ego. So why Bhagavan says that? There we shouldn't equate, we shouldn't be saying, oh, Bhagavan is saying pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, these are ego. That is not what he's saying. He said that the word subtle body, when it's talked about with reference to the subtle body is reincarnated, that means ego is reincarnated. That's why Bhagavan says like that. So we we need to understand the meaning of terms from the context in which they're used. So uh, this subtle term, subtle body, is used in different contexts, in different, uh, sorry, in different sense, in different contexts. Um, so what is actually reborn is ego. What ego takes along with it is the, it's vasanas. But vasanas are the seeds that give rise to everything else. So in a sense, yes, it is taking the other sheaves with it, but only in seed form, in vasana form. When it rises again to dream another life, its vasanas will project a, a body consisting of five sheaves again. Uh, so one thing we need to be aware of is that in different texts, different different levels of explanations are given to different types of questions. So we, Bhagavan has simplified everything. Bhagavan has given us the core and essence of everything. So we shouldn't try uh, mixing up Bhagavan's teachings with other explanations, because those other explanations are given at a different level. Those other explanations are appropriate at the level at which they're given, but Bhagavan's teachings are deeper. So we shouldn't confuse different levels of teachings. That's something we need to be very aware of. So we need to, we, this is why we need a, a subtle and refined understanding. We shouldn't say, oh, sukshma sarira, subtle body, that means these three sheaves. And therefore, wherever the term sukshma sarira is used, it must mean these three sheaves. If we take it like that, we'll be in a confusion because it's used in the, the term sukshma sarira is used in the different sense in different contexts. So in the sense that ego is the sukshma sarira, we cannot do self-investigation without sukshma sarira because ego is the sukshma sarira that is to do the self-investigation. That doesn't mean that ego is any of the five sheaves. Ego is not any of the five sheaves. Ego is that which identifies the five sheaves as I. So I hope this clarification uh, helps. So, so long as you're aware of yourself as I am this person, I am this body, you can investigate yourself. Let the body be a gross body or a subtle body, whatever type of body it is. So long as you're aware of yourself as I am this or I am that, that is ego. But 
so Salonte's identification with any form of any kind whatsoever, that is ego. And that ego needs to turn its attention away from all forms back towards itself. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. That is, that is how we practice self-investigation, by how we investigate who am I, by turning our attention back towards ourselves to find out who is this I? What is this I? This I that we're investigating. We're not investigating the body or the prana or the mind or anything else. We're investigating I and I alone. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya.